people. And Lord, that you shelter those who take refuge in you. And we pray now as we come before your word, as we come to you, that we would take refuge in you. We'd learn from you and that you would instruct us and transform us by the power of your spirit through your word. We ask that you would teach us to forgive others as you have forgiven us. And Lord, that we would be generous in our forgiveness. We thank you for the love and the forgiveness we have in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, greetings from Crescent City. So far, the land that shines as bright as Humboldt and rains just as much. <laughs> you know, the weeks that we're not down here, we've been having to look for another church. So weird to go into another church. Like, these are not, this is not my family. But, you know, it's a pleasure to be able to be down here with you all today, and I'll be preaching off and on through the year. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 18, continuing on in the book of Matthew. If you would turn there. And we'll be starting in verse 21. But in Matthew 18, last week we we talked about church discipline. And today we're going to talk about forgiveness, which would be the other side of what happens after church discipline. And the reason Jesus is bringing this up is because he called us to be a community of people here on earth. And we're going to sin against each other. We just are. It's just part of getting close to one another. Um... And sin left untended, um, insults and little bickerings left unresolved, will cause rifts and strife and ultimately disunity in the church. And so, when in fact we're supposed to be displaying the love and the unity that's even in the Godhead itself, that you'd be one as we are one, as Jesus prayed in John 17. So, though we think of church discipline as dealing with like the big sins, it really it doesn't have to be, and it's actually not meant to be that. There's supposed to be a lot of initial steps of if your brother sins against you, go to him. Get it resolved. There should be a lot of that. And it's like, and if you can't come to resolution, bring someone with you. And if with like, with wisdom and counsel, you still can't get there, that is when like kind of the big church discipline seems to happen. But the point is, we're a church, we're a community, we sin against us, and Jesus wants us to be addressing the sin in our lives. So it doesn't just have to be the big sins. It can be the small sins, the medium sins, if there's such a thing as small and medium sins. And so today we're going to talk about the other end. So after there's resolution, so there's hurt, you address the person, and now there's resolution. Now Jesus is calling you to forgive. Okay, so now just a bit of clarification. I was just thinking about this while studying for the sermon. And There's sin that cuts deep and there's sin that cuts shallow. Right? Some things just sting and some things like really ache and hurt. And I completely acknowledge and empathize with the fact that some of you, some of us, may have been sinned against in such a way that it still hurts. And, and so then the call that you were to forgive in those instances seems more radical than at other times. It is, is forgiveness that's going to require Time and an abundance of God's grace. I think of the man who, dealing with his son, he said, 
God, I believe, help my unbelief. I think a, a similar prayer that would be appropriate if there's someone that you know you ought to forgive and you're just having a hard time doing it to ask, I forgive, but help my unforgiveness. God, help me in that. And that is a prayer I believe that God would be merciful and patient to help you answer. Now, there's a whole lot of sin and offense that happens on the surface, for lack of a better term, on the surface. It's still serious. It still needs to be addressed because, as James reminds us, when sin is fully formed, it produces death. So you can't just let it be. But, you know, sometimes there's like, there's just the light stuff. Like, it's just your, you know, your pride got a little injured or hurt or something like that. And so, Jesus called forgiveness is like, it's the whole spectrum. The easy stuff, the medium stuff, the hard stuff. But Jesus wants us to go after it. He wants reconciliation with his people. He wants peace and unity, repentance and forgiveness. And there's a cycle in the life of the church. I mean, just in your relationships. Think about relationships. It's like there's someone in a marriage who never apologizes. Like, that's problematic. It's really hard to have a relationship with someone who's that arrogant. Similarly, in the church, if there's people who just never apologize and people who never ask for repentance, people never address their sin, that's just going to cause, it's just not going to make for a good relationship. So Peter comes up to Jesus in verse 21 and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And when he begins to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. So Jesus to help us understand this, how much we are to forgive others, he brings us into the court of a king. Now, scholars who look into this, and just the way that the, the word that they use for king and the, what you're seeing going on, is not being modeled after a Jewish concept of a king. If, if the way he's telling this, he's like, there's a court in the Gentile court in a land far away, and there's a king who's settling his accounts. So if you're sitting here as a good Jew, you'd be like, oh, those harsh kings demanding all the taxes, taking our money, taking our crops. This is a court where you wouldn't expect forgiveness. You expect harsh severity. It'd be like saying Vladimir Putin one day decided to call on everyone who was behind on their taxes and have a reckoning. And you think, those people are going to have a bad day. So it's not, so the way he's framing is a situation where you're not expecting forgiveness. And so then you imagine various people coming in, being asked to settle their debts. And obviously for everyone, that's going to be a bit painful. But there's this one man who comes in, and they're in a bit of a conundrum because this man has gotten himself so incredibly deep into debt with the king that payment is almost impossible. Like, how far in debt is he? Well, it says that he owes the king. 10,000 talents. What's a talent? Besides a skill that you're good at. Okay, so a talent is a weight of measurement. It's basically how much weight a soldier can carry on their back. So after you went and you plundered a city, and you're like, okay, let's take all the treasure home. Like you're loading up backpacks full of gold and silver, 
And what you could throw on the back of an average soldier, that was a talent. Imagine like a, a soldier, like a good old American GI, right, coming and dropping a whole pack of gold in front of you. You're rich. Like, that's amazing. Imagine 10,000 soldiers with 10,000 packs of gold. That's a lot of money. And that's precisely what this man owed the king. Someone, like people are always trying to calculate, well, how much would that be if you count for the price of gold today and inflation and all these things? Uh, it's like the equivalent of a few billion dollars. Do you have a few billion? Like, I will never see a few million dollars pass through my accounts, even in my like wildest um, working dreams. Like, that's just not going to happen. This is an insurmountable debt that the man will never be able to pay off. How he got into debt, we don't know. It doesn't really say. So in response, the king did what was practical and perfectly within his right to do. He ordered that the man's complete estate be liquefied for whatever money that could be gained in order that the man and family should be sold to slavery. You owe taxes. I mean, think about it. If you owe taxes in America, you're going to in jail. So this man who came before the king for whatever series of bad decisions he made is now just completely and utterly ruined his life. And the moment has come for him to come do on that. So this says, So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now what is interesting is that this guy is not asking for forgiveness. He's asking for patience. I imagine this guy, in some desperate scheme, imagines that he's going to pull this off. Like, imagine, like, you know those people who just get in, like, crazy debt, gambling? They're, like, 50000 in. And they're like, okay, let's go another round, double or nothing. And everybody with a cool head is looking at him going, like, are you serious? There's no way that this is going to pay off. So this man is just saying, like, okay, wait, wait, wait. I've got a way to make this work. And, like, if you've already gotten yourself this far in, you're probably just going to make it that much worse. And so, this guy, his, he's so pitiable in the situation. This guy's fate, his situation, his pitiful attempts to try to extricate himself from the situation, it's just all pitiable. And so, it says the king, looking at this man trying to say that he's going to work it off, says, No. The king is moved to pity. And instead of demanding whatever payment the man could offer, the king decides just to completely absorb the debt and let the man go free. This man just experienced liberation far beyond what he ever, ever deserved. Now, I'm going to remind you of the setup. If you're sitting there listening to Jesus, you're probably not expecting a Gentile king to let someone off that owed that much money. Whoa, it's crazy. And you're almost thinking like, the end. But there's like one more twist that you probably weren't expecting. And I think because like we read the Bible a lot, I hope, and you've heard these stories before, there's no real like, and it's like, oh yeah, I know what happens next. Even like in the Bible, it kind of gives you the unforgiving servant. You're like, well, I don't know what's going to happen next just by the title of the story. But just imagine the shock when you sit there and you think this guy's going free and how happy he's going to be. And then he goes 
and finds one of his fellow servants who owed him money. And it seems like he literally goes out from the king's court and finds this guy and violently grabs the man by his throat and demands immediate repayment. Shocking. It's gut-wrenching. Like, what? The guy grabs him by the throat and says, pay what you owe. And so this fellow servant falls down and pleads with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. The man refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, in comparison, you know, if a talent is like how much a soldier can carry on their backpack, a denarii is how much an average middle class, there was no middle class back then, but like what an average middle class person would make in a day. Like, it's the average income. So if you went out, worked for a guy in the field, you'd make a denarii. And comparisonly, it's like this guy really only owes like 20 weeks worth of labor. You could pull that off on Saturdays, right? Just because, you know, a couple of years of Saturdays and you've paid off your debt. And so it's completely within reason that this man can pay off his debt. And in the parallel, the wording is supposed to be obvious that just as the first servant had asked for patience and then received mercy, so too the other servant has asked for patience, but instead receives the unflinching wrath that you would have expected from the Gentile king in the first place. So it says in verse 31, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers. Or as some of your translations might say, the torturers or the oppressive jailers. Whatever, whatever is intended by the statement is not Andy Griffith, okay? So he handed him over to the jailers until he pay, paid his debt. So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So I hope that we see and feel some of the shock of this parable because Jesus intends for us to feel shocked by this parable. We should be shocked at the extravagance of forgiveness offered by the king. We should be shocked by the incongruent response of the forgiven servant. I suspect, as modern Americans, we might be shocked and maybe a little bit disturbed and perhaps even a little disapproving of the fact that the king's wrath, wrathful response at the end. Although, I think to the original hearers, the response of the king at the end is probably the least shocking part about the story. We just have modern sensibilities, easily rankled. But justice is justice. This definition, <laughs> why did I say that? This parable is meant to teach us about forgiveness. So I'd like to remind you of the best definition I have for what forgiveness is. I preached a few weeks ago, was it months? I don't know. How long have I been gone? I preached on forgiveness in, in Psalm 32. This idea from the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for forgiveness is a word picture, which means to lift up, to take a weight off something. And the idea in the Hebrew is that if you take the weight off something, somewhere the weight goes somewhere. So literally to forgive is to take the weight yourself. You take it yourself. Think about it. If someone does something against you, 
There's like there's like that kind of like that weighing on your heart or the weighing on your gut. It's actually a good word picture, you know. And and so it's, it's on you, and you you know it keeps you up at night, and like it just kind of bothers you. And at some point, forgiveness says, you know what? Instead of inflicting revenge and trying to get this weight off of me through retribution, I'll, I'll just take it. I'll just absorb it. I'll carry the burden. I'll absorb the cost. Or in the case of the king, like I'll absorb the debt. I'll carry that. So what does this parable teach us about forgiveness? And I think there's three things. First of all, clearly, is the extent of the forgiveness required. Secondly, is where we have the where we get the power to forgive, and third is the consequence for not forgiving. So, the extent of forgiveness required, the power to forgive, and the consequences for not forgiving. So, the extent of forgiveness. Peter comes up and says, "Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him as many as seven times?" In other words, Peter just heard this whole like church discipline thing, what we call church discipline. This like going to your brother who sins against you and restoring fellowship, and he's starting to get it, because that can be a little uncomfortable. It's like, well, you know, looking at the 12 guys around me, right? Like, you know, James and John, these guys are so annoying. It's like there's always something, and like how often are they going to do something before I just say, you know what, enough is enough. No more forgiveness. And so he throws out a number that he probably thinks is quite generous. Seven times. If I forgive them, if they do something against me seven times, I forgive them the seven times, they come to eight times, surely, surely, that is enough. And this idea of seven just doesn't come out of nowhere. Like, if you look in the law, there's like this ongoing sense of like uh, sevenfold retribution. So remember, Cain murders Abel, and God says, I'm going to put a mark upon you, you're now in exile. And Cain says, well, what about if anybody comes and hurts me? And God says, well, I will revenge them sevenfold. When you sprinkle the blood for atonement in Leviticus 26, when you sprinkle the blood, you sprinkle it seven times, as it were, for complete atonement for sin. And likewise, when your sins were visited upon you in Leviticus 26, the punishment was sevenfold. So this idea of sevenfold judgment, sevenfold forgiveness, um, is a theme throughout the Old Testament. So, Peter says, look, if I look in the law and I'm looking for a good number, seven. That seems like a great idea. So then Jesus counters with his own number. Now the point of Jesus is going to be like, you don't sit there and count down 77 times. That's not his point. Because he's playing, he's doing a word play here. Jesus counters by throwing out his own number. He says as many as 77 times. Okay, so remember in Genesis 4, Cain's great-great-grandson, Lamech, who um, is a horrible guy. It's probably the first, like the first recorded instance of polygamy in the Bible. Um, and he has these two wives, and he boasts to them. He says, quote, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You lies of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So when he's using seventy-sevenfold, what Lamech's saying is, I will tolerate nothing. I will perfectly extract my revenge on whoever I feel offends me to whatever degree I see fit. You strike me, I'll kill you. And I'll do it to anybody. And I'm going to brag about it. And Jesus is 
turning that on its head. As if Jesus is saying, you will forgive everything. You will forgive whoever you feel offends you. It's like the opposite of what Lamech was boasting. Now, there's this age-old debate, and it kind of comes up in like this passage. There's this age-old debate about whether or not you can forgive someone who does not ask for your forgiveness. Have you heard this? Like, Can you forgive someone who doesn't come up and ask for forgiveness? Or as one Christian writer asked, quote, Is it possible for a Christian to remain fully obedient to Scripture with kindness and tenderness, loving his enemy as himself, and yet at the same time not grant forgiveness to an unrepented offender? I'll say it one more time. Is it possible for a Christian to remain fully obedient to Scripture with kindness and tenderheartedness, loving his enemy as himself, and yet at the same time not grant forgiveness to an unrepentant offender? And look, to be honest, I actually don't have a perfect answer for you on this one. Um, because I'm going to read some passages. Uh, there's, there's only something like roughly 12, 14 pa- passages in the New Testament dealing, addressing forgiveness, and they're short, and I'm going to read them all. I think it's really helpful for framing this, but there's times where it seems that the concept of forgiveness is just wide-sweeping. Like, you're going to forgive. You're just going to forgive, even your enemies. Even when your enemies are persecuting you, you're going to forgive them. But then there seems like there's moments where it says, like, if you don't forgive, for example, if you, here's God dealing with an unrepentant offender. God, who loves his enemy, does good to his enemies, yet he, he does not forgive unless they repent. So let me just read some of these verses. Matthew chapter 5. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Luke says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, for God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In Romans 12 it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And Ephesians says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. In Hebrews it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many have become defiled. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's from Romans 12. In Ephesians, we're told to forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. And in Colossians chapter 3, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us in our prayers to say, Father, forgive us our debts, even as we have forgiven our debtors. And in a parallel passage in Luke 11, it says, Father, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. In Matthew chapter 6, I may have read this before, but here it is. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Luke says, Jesus says in Luke, forgive and you'll be forgiven. And in Mark he says, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. If you... Forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. 
In Ephesians 4, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. In Colossians 3, We are to bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love that we read at weddings and we think about relationships, but the initial context of 1 Corinthians 13 is in the church. Here's how the church ought to love each other. Love is patient and kind and does not boast or envy. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That last passage is, seems especially helpful to me because it seems like in Matthew 13, there's times, if there's, like, if there's a sin against you and you really need to address it, address it. But then there's also this, probably those, those surface petty things where someone just insulted you or said something that offended you. And Paul's saying, look, Don't keep account of wrongs. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Just let it go. So are there times that we should, should withhold forgiveness if the person won't repent, perhaps? But I think the real question that we should be asking is can you do it with love towards that person? Can you do it with love towards that person? But whatever the answer, it's absolutely clear, especially when people come asking you for forgiveness, the extent of it is your forgiveness should be inexhaustible. Which leads to the second question, where do you get the power to forgive? Because what Jesus is calling for is a radical heart transformation. Because in verse 35, Jesus says that we are to forgive our brothers from our heart. Nothing surfacey about that. Nothing superficial about that. It's not just like verbal assent the way like <laughs> I watch little kids who are remaining nameless like give like verbal assent but you wonder if there's truly forgiveness and repentance towards each other. We say yes I forgive you but then you still hold a grudge. Like he wants you to forgive in such a way that you're not mulling on it and bringing it up and holding it against that person forever and ever. Amen. Christ wants us to forgive from the very core of our being. From our heart. And I remind you that the heart is not just the center of your emotions, the way Americans like to think about it on Valentine's Day. Not just your emotions, but your heart is the center of your trusts. It's the center of your ultimate delights, your reasoning and your reason for existence. The heart is a place where you worship, where you commit idolatry, where you adore things or despise things. It's the seat of our pride, which is so easily offended. It's a place where we might desire something more than God or we might trust God more than anything. Think about reasons you won't forgive. Innumerable, probably, but... Reasons you may not forgive. When someone asks for forgiveness, you want them to feel your vengeance. You want them to feel some sense of pain they're not getting off this easy. Or there's a specific outcome that you were wanting. And unless you get that specific outcome, 
you're not going to let it go. Or you feel so wounded and, and you're nursing this grudge, at some point you're just kind of like pampering it. You kind of like being the victim. You like having this, like, be able to say that people have hurt you and offended you and all these things. And it becomes part of your identity. All these, whatever these reasons, they all in a sense boil down to some form of idolatry. So what does Jesus show us in this parable? What breaks idolatry? What breaks unforgiveness? Where does the power to forgiveness comes from? And I believe it's showing us that the power to forgive someone comes from a heart that's truly tasted the joy of God's forgiveness. Truly tasted the joy of God's forgiveness, which means that you must truly accept your utter poverty before God. Because when I think about this parable, and when I was studying this, I didn't see this until my like second, like eighth, ninth path, that this guy never asked for forgiveness. He asked for patience. And then like turned around and like demanded something from the other servant. The joy of forgiveness seemed to be something that the servant missed because the end of the story should have said he went out leaping and jumping and praising the king, right? But he didn't. He's thinking, okay, so how do I get my next? Yeah, I just made, you know, I lost all this debt. Let's get ahead. Okay, now this, I'm going to give you an example. This is a bad example, mainly because it's only fall and second of all because it's the Christmas carol and I'm going to use Christmas carol. Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge. Selfish, tight-fisted man who was cruel, demanded everything he could extract from everybody. And yeah, Christmas carol happens. And at the end, he's this joyful, giving man. What would you say about Ebenezer Scrooge if at the end of all that, He's still Ebenezer Scrooge. You say, Ebenezer Scrooge did not learn his lesson. He obviously did not appreciate what had been given to him. Look, when Jesus says that the servant owes $3 billion worth of debt, Jesus is not using hyperbole to exaggerate the story. He's using extreme language to demonstrate to us the debt and poverty we are in towards God. This is not hyperbole. This is the reality. If anything... It is our debt before God that makes $3 billion look like a denarii. We owe so much more. And if you think, or if we think, that overall we're okay, if we think that if only we had enough time, maybe we could turn things around, if we do not see our sin for the absolute destructive power in our lives that it really is, and, and that our sin inflicts harm on ourselves, on our family, inflicts harm in this world. And if you do not feel the weight of it, the debt of it, then you'll never know the joy of forgiveness. Oh, that we might have deep conviction of our sin, so that every day we might repent anew and rejoice and be refreshed by the good news of the gospel that in Jesus Christ, I am forgiven that he bore my debt on the cross so that I do not have to pay it. In the parable, the king says, should not if you had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you, had mercy on you. Don't soften that phrase. It's a bold phrase. If you have experienced the mercy of God in Christ, then you must, you ought, you are absolutely required to show mercy on others. 
If you have experienced mercy, then that is something, and you, and you truly have experienced it as something that's joyful and delightful, and it is the life of your being, then it makes you want to be merciful. It is your duty, even as it is your delight. And frankly, you've got the resources. You know, if you needed to pay off a $10 debt, but you've been forgiven $100,000 of debt, yeah, I'll take it. I'll pay off the $10 of debt. There's no debt that's ever been inflicted on us, no sin that's ever been done to us. It's as horrific as a sin might be. There's no sin that's been inflicted on us so deep that it is not more than what we have been forgiven of. And God says this. God says this is word, fully aware of how deep in pain Suffering can go. But what he gives us in Christ goes even deeper still. So as a believer, if your heart is truly satisfied in Christ, if your joy is truly fixed on Christ, if your hope is firmly anchored on Christ, then no matter the pain or the tragedy that experienced at the hand of other people, you will always have the power and the resources to forgive. And we think about like some of the most horrific moments in history. Auschwitz, where you had people forgiving their captors. I was listening to uh, a guy who's, who's speaking about atheists love to use Auschwitz as an example of why they should say God exists. But he said, if you talk to the people who are in those prisons together, the atheists were losing hope and committing suicide in mass number. The Christians were forgiving and living joyfully afterwards. Finally, the consequences for not forgiving. The consequences for not forgiving. So on the one hand, there's a motivation for mercy that you've, you've tasted it and you know it's good and you want to show others. And on the other hand, there's the correction or the, the punishment for not showing mercy. What does it say that after all this, you're still Ebenezer Scrooge? What if you're still nursing your grudges? You will not, will not forgive. Then Jesus says that you're completely inconsistent. You are warped. You are twisted. Unjust. In a word, you are wicked. Because it's at that moment when the man demonstrates his unwillingness to forgive that Jesus, the king finally says, you wicked servant. It scares me when I meet people who profess Christ who are clearly bitter, who are clearly angry, who are just consumed with it, who are just nursing grudges, telling stories of things that happened to them 20 years ago at a church, some fight that they just can't let go of, some split they can't let go of. There's no joy there. And, and they profess to be Christians, and I don't see fruit of righteousness. I see weeds of death bearing its fruit in their life. Jesus says that on the last day, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, like, Master, Master, we were waiting for you. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This chapter in Matthew is for us. This is what builds unity and fellowship in the church. We're going to sin against each other. We just are. We're going to address the sin. We're still required to love each other. We're still required to fellowship with each other. We're still required to address the problems. And Jesus has given the process for that. 
And we are absolutely required to forgive each other. Look, you cannot walk away from this unchanged. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you about some issue where you need to forgive, then you really ought to do something about it. I want to close with one last illustration. Do you remember, like two years ago, there was a shooting at Emmanuel Emmanuel African Methodist Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where Dylan Roof, a 20-year-old white supremacist, convinced himself that he could start a race war in America by walking into a church on a Wednesday. It was a prayer meeting. He sat with them, fellowship with them, and in the middle of it, he pulled out a gun and murdered most of them, including their senior pastor, including women and men, seniors and middle-aged and people. Horrific. And during his bond hearing, members of his church had a chance to speak to him. And the church, these people from the church, again and again came up and expressed forgiveness. And one man in particular came up and said, I forgive you. We take this opportunity to ask you, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change you. He can change in ways that matter and change you so that you'll be okay. Do that, young man, and you'll be better off than you are right now. And so uh, a commentator at a magazine said, the late Christopher Hitchens, who was an atheist, formulated and forever repeated a superficially clever challenge to people of faith. He would say, find one good noble thing which cannot be accomplished without religion. The astonishing rejoinder to Hitchin comes now from the families of those gunned down in Charleston, South Carolina. And an atheist on the National Review replied to that and said, I am a non-Christian. I must say, this is a remarkable advertisement for Christianity that you could forgive and love your enemy. So we pray that the Lord would make us a people who love each other, forgive each other, and dwell in unity with one another. Let's pray. God, we pray that above all things, Lord, that we would taste and see that you are good. Oh, that we would know the joy of our salvation that we have in you that we'd know the love of a Father who sent His Son to die for our sins, that we'd know the love of a Savior who bore the wrath that we deserve on the cross so we would not bear it, that we'd know the love of the Spirit who would bring us in fellowship again with You. Lord, that we would find delight in You and be so transformed by it that we can love our enemies, that we can forgive our enemies, that we can dwell with people that rankle us sometimes. But Lord, seek forgiveness, seek reconciliation, and move on. God, I pray that you would draw us together. Lord, that we would magnify who you are. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dwelling together in perfect unity, that we would reflect that reality. Lord, we pray that those in the world would be astonished and amazed at the love that we have because of you. And Lord, that many would come to righteousness for it. These are tall orders. Lord, we ask that you would help. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name.
Amen. If the worship team would come forward and spend time for communion.